How would you turn your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll read part of chapter 11 as well. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and let's read from verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that I bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifice, uh, sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then over to 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and uh, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Amen. And we know God will always bless the reading of his word. So this morning, we're continuing our studies in the church and you'll remember that we've been looking at those four pillars of church life in Acts 2:42 that the church committed themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. 
those were the four essential activities of the church, the things that the early believers prioritized as a church, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. Uh, And in our study so far, we have considered preaching and fellowship, and so we come to that third element this morning, the breaking of bread. And because the breaking of bread is listed among those uh, four, three other things, we know that it is the Lord's table that he was speaking, he is speaking about. Uh, Sometimes the Lord's table is referred to as the Eucharist, and there's nothing wrong with that word. It comes from the Greek word, Eucharisto, uh, which means to give thanks, and it's used in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, and when he had given thanks. That's the word. He broke bread and said. Sometimes it's called communion from 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 in the authorized version, the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not communion with the blood of Christ? The ESV translates that as participation. And then the most popular designation Uh, among ourselves, probably is the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table. 1 Corinthians 10, 21, you cannot take part in the Lord's Table and the Table of Demons. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So this morning we're looking at the Lord's Table, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, the communion feast. And I want you to notice, first of all, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And you see that in 1 Corinthians 11 and verses 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul, in these verses takes us back to the night that Jesus was betrayed, to the upper room, to that event which was known as the Last Supper. But Paul would have us understand that it wasn't the Last Supper, but it was the First Supper because it was the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, you remember that the disciples had gathered in that upper room to celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the meal of the Old Covenant Uh, celebrating God's deliverance of his people out of Egypt and their their arrival in the promised land. You remember just before the last plague, the Israelites painted the blood of a lamb uh, on their doorposts and lintels of their homes, and the angel of death passed over the Israelite homes and struck down the firstborn of the Egyptian homes. The sacrificial lamb was roasted and eaten eaten along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs and washed down with four cups of wine. Now, this meal was celebrated annually in Israel, and it was at that meal that Jesus instituted a new meal for a new covenant, the Lord's Supper. And the new meal would remind the worshipers uh, not of the exodus from Egypt, but from the exodus of, uh, from sin when sheltering beneath the blood of the Lamb of God, we would be brought safely uh, into heaven. Now, the Passover began with the host blessing the wine. 
and passing it around the guests. And there were four cups in all. Now, those four cups represented the four promises that are found in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 6, uh, uh, verses 6 through to 8. So, Uh, There are four promises there given to Moses as to what God will do. I will bring you out. I will uh, free you from slavery. I will redeem you and I will take you to the promised land. After the first cup was drank, bitter herbs were dipped into a fruit sauce um, which the bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of life in Egypt. And the fruit sauce was like a mud-like consistency, which reminded them of the mud bricks that they had to bake while in Egypt. There was a short message when uh, the youngest child would ask, what do these things signify? And then the father of the house would explain the meaning of the Passover. Then a hymn was sung, and that was the Hallel, those Hallel Psalms, uh, uh, Psalm 113 through Psalm 114, praise the Lord, praise him, all servants of the Lord. After that, the second cup was passed around, and uh, that was the cup uh, of deliverance from slavery. I will bring you out. And then the host would break the unleavened bread. And it was at that point Jesus took the bread and he broke it. Uh, And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then they had the the feast, the meat, the lamb that had been roasted. Notice in verse uh, 25, it says, in the same way, uh, he also took the cup after supper. After supper, do you notice that? So there was the breaking of the bread, there was the eating of the lamb, and then there was the third cup. And the third cup was the uh, cup of redemption. I will bring you out. And it is that cup that Jesus takes, the one after they had eaten, and says, this is the new covenant in my blood. At that point, the rest of the Hallel, Psalm 115 to Psalm 118, were, were were, were sang together. And then the fourth cup of wine was passed around, and that was the cup of completion. I will bring you into the land. That cup Jesus didn't take. He says, I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it with uh, with you in my Father's kingdom. So in a sense, the Passover was never completed, There was one more cup, the cup of completion uh, that uh, has to be celebrated. And Jesus says, I'll not drink that cup until I drink it with you in the kingdom. So there is this eschatological emphasis on the Lord's Supper that there's one more cup to come, the cup of the new covenant, the cup of completion when we're brought back into the promised land. In this brief and simple act, Jesus instituted a new meal out of an old meal signifying a new covenant to replace the old covenant. Just as the old covenant meal signified physical deliverance from bondage in Egypt, 
and they, they, they're coming into the promised land. So the new covenant meal was to signify spiritual deliverance from sin to salvation and our ultimate arrival in the promised land. Now, Paul clearly states that this feast was instituted by Jesus, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, verse 23. He further says, Paul says, that he received notification or the details of this feast by direct revelation. For I received from the Lord, verse 23, which I also delivered to you. 1 Corinthians was the earliest letter of the New Testament. It was written before the Gospels. They couldn't turn to the Gospels to read about the institution of the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord reveals to Paul directly about uh, the Lord's Supper so that he could inform the churches that he planted so that the Lord's Supper would be celebrated in those churches. If you go down to verse 26, you see that it was intended by the Lord to be celebrated until he comes. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now think about this. If our Lord instituted it, felt it was important enough to reveal it directly to Paul, who could inform the churches that he planted, then the Lord's Supper is important. When General Booth founded the Salvation Army, he felt that there was so much controversy surrounding baptism and the Lord's Supper that he said, we'll dispense with those ordinances. We'll do without them, but we can't do it. These ordinances were instituted by Christ himself and were to be used and celebrated until he comes. If the Lord felt it was important enough to reveal it to Paul so that Paul could implement it in the churches. It is certainly important. Certainly the early church viewed it in that way because at first they broke bread every day and then it settled down into a weekly pattern. Luke 20 and verse 7, on the first day of the week we came together to break bread. It's not just a privilege to be at the Lord's table but it is uh, an important thing. It is an important duty to be at the Lord's table. I know it's not always possible to stay. Things come up, situations are, uh, arise, but it ought to figure high on our list of priorities because it was instituted by Christ himself and revealed by Christ to Paul so that Paul could implement it in the churches. The institution of the Lord's Supper. The second thing I want you to notice this morning is the significance of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is where we enter the troubled waters of controversy. At the time of the Reformation, the three great magisterial reformers, Swingley, Luther, and Calvin, were completely divided on the significance of the Lord's Supper. The Roman Catholic Church, over a period of many years, had taught the doctrine, had developed the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Jesus, a doctrine that's still held by the Catholic Church today so that when the priest elevates the host and the bell rings, he proclaims, this is the Lord. Now, the Reformers rejected that. Swingley said that the Lord's table was simply a memorial, a, a remembrance feast, a symbolic commemoration 
Luther couldn't get past these words, this is my body and this is my blood. And although he didn't believe that the emblems actually became the body, literally became the body and the blood of of Christ, he believed that when you took the bread and wine, that Christ's body and blood were communicated to you with it, a doctrine known as consubstantiation. And when Luther met Swingley on the 4th of October, 1529 at Marburg to settle the issue, Luther wrote in chalk on the table, this is my body, this is my blood. And when um, Swingley tried to reason with him, uh, Luther just kept pointing at these words, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my body, this is my blood. Passions ran so high that uh, Luther refused to shake hands with Swingley as a brother in Christ. Calvin rejected both those ideas, believing that it was more than a remembrance feast, and yet not the body, the literal body and blood of the Lord. That in the communion service, the believer does feed upon Christ, but he feeds upon Christ by faith and in his mind. Notice from the text, the significance, the three significant things about the Lord's table. First of all, it is a memorial feast. Swingley was right. It is a remembrance feast. Verse 24 and 25, we have these words repeated, in remembrance of me. Jesus tells us that the bread and the wine will remind us of something. This is my body, verse 24. Verse 25, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now, we know that these things were figurative because remember the context is the Passover and each element in the Passover reminded them of something. So the bitter herbs reminded them of the bitterness of their life in Egypt. The unleavened bread reminded them of the haste in which they had to leave Egypt. The the fruit dip reminded them of the mud that they used to bake Uh, The bricks in Egypt, the roasted lamb, reminded them of the Passover. And when Jesus says, this is my body, this is the new covenant in my blood, the bread and the wine point to something. They are symbolic of something. They help us remember. Now, the bread speaks to us of his life. In Semitic thought, the, the body represented all of one's life, one's birth, one's character, one's nature, one's achievement. And to break the bread symbolizes that his life, his, all of his life, who he was, was cut short. And the wine speaks to us of Christ's blood. In Semitic thought, the life was in the blood. And to shed a person's blood, to spill a person's blood, was to bring on death. Now, that's what we remember at the table. His life, his substitutionary life, his perfect life of obedience to the law of God, his life without sin in the bread, his death, his substitutionary death upon the cross when he shed his blood and swallowed up the wrath of God. Notice the word substitutionary, a substitutionary life and a substitutionary death. Verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 11. This is my body which is for you. For you. Luke 22. This is my body 
given for you. This cup is the new covenant which is poured out for you. Those two words, for you, are very precious. That's what we remember. We remember his substitutionary life and his substitutionary death. So it was a memorial feast. In it we remember the great work of our Lord in his life, the bread, and in his death, the wine. In a very real sense, it's an accommodation to our weakness. This do in remembrance of me. Remembrance of me. How could I ever forget? How could I forget him who lived my life for me and died my death for me, who shed his blood in my um, my, my place, but in the humdrum of life and the pressures of life, I can so easily move my attention and my focus from him. And the Lord's table is designed to bring me back to his, those two things, to his life and death. It's a memorial feast, something to uh, remind us. Secondly, it's a preaching picture. Look at verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The authorized version says show, but it's the word preach. It's the normal word for preach or proclaim. Um, it's preaching um, uh, the death of Christ. The Lord's table is an exposition of the death of Christ. It's a full and open statement about his death. What Paul is essentially saying is that each time you break bread, the glorious doctrine of the atonement is set forth in pictures. It's preaching in pictures. Just as baptism is a picture of what happens to us spiritually, so the Lord's table is a picture of what Christ has endured for us. And that's why children, I think, should be at the Lord's table. Because it preaches the uh, atonement. That's why non-Christians should be encouraged to stay for the Lord's table. Because it preaches Christ. They can observe. They don't have to participate. But they should be there. Because it's, it's preaching forth the atonement. That's why we need the table every week. Because continually we need to be taken back to the cost of our redemption. Now, when we come to the Lord's table, two things should happen. One, uh, there should be this overwhelming sense of, of sin and guilt. If, if to cover my sin, Christ the sinless one, his body had to be broken and his blood had to be shed so that God could justifiably forgive that sin, then sin is serious to God. So there's this awareness of sin, but then there's this joy in forgiveness that we taste fresh, as Bonner says in his great hymn, we taste afresh the calm of sins forgiven. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. So it's a memorial feast. It's a preaching picture. And then it's a spiritual participation. Just go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 16. 
The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And what Paul is saying here is very significant. He is saying that the Lord's uh, table is not simply a memorial feast where we remember the death of Jesus, nor is it a preaching picture where we set forth the atonement of the Lord, but that we participate something in something. The authorized version uses the word communion. It is that Greek word that we looked um, at a, f- a few weeks ago, koinonia. And koinonia, fellowship, means to share, to participate, to enter in uh, to So we share in his death and in his life in the wine and the bread. In other words, there is something mystical happening at the Lord's table where we fellowship, where we participate in his body and blood. And that was Calvin's point. It's not just a remembrance. It's not just a declaration. It's a sharing of the benefits of Christ's death and his life. I need to be careful. I'm not saying by the emblems we appropriate something. I'm saying when by faith we come and are taken back through the bread and the wine to Calvary, we, we are communing in a very significant and a very special way with Christ. We feed upon Christ by faith. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifice sacrifices participants at the altar? That when they ate the sacrifices, they were sharing in the sacrifice that had been made. And you see it there in verse 20. No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, uh, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. That if you're going to those pagan feasts and joining in those pagan, pagan feasts, you're sharing spiritually in that idolatry. To eat bread and drink wine at the Lord's table brings you into fellowship, into communion with Christ's death and life. Now, by faith, please don't misunderstand me. It's when we remember, you can sit there passively and just do it mechanically. It'll do you no good. But when you employ faith, you feed upon Christ. It's a means of grace to us. It strengthens us in our faith. And so when somebody's struggling in their Christian life and saying, oh, I can't come to the table, that's the worst thing you do, you, 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 you do. You should be at the table. Because at the table, you feed upon Christ. So the Lord's table then is a memorial feast. It's a preaching picture and it's a spiritual participation. The institution of the Lord's Supper, the significance of the Lord's Supper, and then the requirement of the Lord's Supper. Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine themselves and so let them eat, 1 Corinthians 11, and so let them drink. Paul makes self-examination a requirement for the Lord's Supper because it's such a serious business to come to the table in an inappropriate way means that you're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. 
Now, Paul makes three requirements of these Corinthians. The first is that you need to be a Christian. You see that in verse 33 of 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. There is this underlying assumption in the text that those who are participating at the table are actually believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat, and so let him drink. Are you a Christian? The the first requirement is that you're a Christian. You don't have to be a particularly strong Christian, but you need to be a Christian. Secondly, you need to be living a consistent life. Go back to 1 Corinthians 10 and those verses that I mentioned in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake at the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? So you, you, know, you remember what was happening. There was a great issue in, in the church in Corinth, whether the believers could eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. And Paul, back in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, says there six, there's nothing wrong with uh, eating food that's been sacrificed to idols. An idol is nothing. But it seems that some of the believers were actually going further, and they were participating in these pagan feasts. And they were actually uh, indulging uh, their appetites at these pagan feasts. And Paul says, you, you can't eat at the table of demons and at the table of the Lord. You just, you just can't do that. That's that's wrong. That's reprehensible. He says, don't you know that God is a jealous God, that he's jealous for our loyalties, jealous for our affections. We are to love him and serve him only. So you can't be in our context like clubbing and drinking and coming home drunk on a Saturday night and sitting at the Lord's table on a, on a Sunday morning. You can't do that. You can't be indulging every sexual appetite that you have uh, with uh, illegitimate sex, sex outside marriage, and then come and eat at the table uh, on the Sunday morning. You can't do that. You need to be living consistently. You can't eat at the table of the Lord and the table of demons because our God is a jealous God, jealous in the right sense. Jealous as a husband would be jealous of his wife if she was giving her affection to anyone else. Our God is jealous, and he will not tolerate rivals. So there must be this consistent life. So you must be a believer in Christ. You must be living a consistent life. Uh, And thirdly, he says, you must love the church family. Turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 11 again, verse 17. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Imagine that, that they're coming together for the Lord's table, but it's doing more harm than good. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those 
who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say? Shall I commend you in this? We need to understand the context here. The Lord's Supper was originally celebrated in the context of a meal, a love feast. It wasn't a tiny morsel of bread and a medicine cup of wine. It was uh, a celebration. On the first day of the week, they would come together and they would wait after church. And it was a kind of potluck supper or um, what we might call a pot providence supper. And people would bring joints of meat or fish, milk, fruit, wine, bread, and they would share the food together and in that context celebrate the Lord's Supper. It was an expression of love and fellowship. It was a love feast. The practice was abolished in 397 AD at the Council of Carthage because of abuse. Now what was happening in Corinth was that the divisions in the church manifested itself At the feast, the poor were left watching the rich gorge themselves on food, and it was doing more harm. Now, the Lord's table is an expression of unity. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, because there is one bread. I I never understand why in Baptist churches we cut the bread up into little pieces, because the, the one bread, the one loaf, was significant. Because there is one bread... We who are many uh, are one body for all partake of the one bread. So the, the, the bread symbolized their unity in Christ. Uh, but they, they were eating in a way that was causing division. Now look at verse 29 of chapter 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body. Now, that doesn't mean some mystical appreciation of the significance of the bread. It means that they weren't discerning, that they were part of the same body, that they were brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what Paul is uh, condemning. This rivalry and this uh, attitude and this they in their small corner and I and mine kind of attitude when it came to the table. And Paul is emphasizing that you must be in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says, this is why some of you are sick and why some of you are asleep, because they didn't discern the body of the Lord. God killed them. Because they dared come to the table out of fellowship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does God look for when we come to the table? He looks for faith in Christ. We must be believers in Him. He looks for consistency in life. We, might, we must be seeking to walk in fellowship with Him. And then we must love His people. We must seek to, to discern the body of the Lord, that we must realize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. So the institution of the Lord's Supper 
on the night he was betrayed at the Passover meal, and I think that's very significant. The significance of the, the Lord's Supper, that it is a memorial feast, it's a preaching symbol, and it's an active participation. And the requirement of the Lord's Supper, let a man examine himself. There, we must be believers in the Lord Jesus, we must be living consistent lives, and we must have love for the church family. Amen.